This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast, the ongoing research and the future of cardiac transplantation. Um, with us today, we have um, our, our guest, Dr. Jason Guichard, heart transplant specialist uh, in South Carolina. Uh, we have also uh, Dr. David McGiffin, heart transplant specialist and director of the um, cardiac surgery program um, at the Alfred Hospital in Australia. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being part of this podcast on heart transplantation. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so last podcast, uh, we discussed some of the, um, the new U.S. donor heart allocation policy and basically discussed that there were obviously more categories to better stratify medical emergencies and, and decrease weightless mortality. Uh, we also discussed that ECMO patients receive top priority. Uh, we saw also and discussed that the VAD patient and other patients with mechanical circulatory support devices are seen as a viable long-term alternative, of course, albeit if there are no complications. All new policies are reevaluated every six months. And it's also, we discussed the change in the principal guiding geographic organ distribution zones around the donor hospital, meaning that if there are no local patient match or there's a sicker patient elsewhere, the heart will be considered by hospitals within 500 to 1,000 miles. Obviously, that brings you know, a lot of issues, and we had discussed some of these issues, uh, particularly the stress that it causes on the donor heart, uh, mostly with the ischemic time. And, and Dr. McGiffin, uh, you had mentioned some of the research that you were doing in that area in Australia. Uh, what, is, what is possible nowadays, and what are we looking at? to protect the donor heart uh, and make it available for patients very, very far away. This, this issue is a particular problem in a country the size of Australia, which has uh, a fifteenth of the population of the United States, uh, and, but the same, roughly the same surface area of the United States. So we have these enormous distances uh, that donor hearts have to have to travel, uh, and there are only five heart transplant programs in the entire country. So the areas of Australia that are very very remote that that would have donors, uh, and the ischemic time uh, that is the time from when the uh, heart is removed from the donor to when it's beating again in the recipient can be inordinately long. As we've mentioned on a previous podcast, there is a very clear relationship between increasing probability of primary graft dysfunction, that is the donor heart doesn't work in the recipient, with increasing ischemic time. And the break point in that curve is around about four to five hours. Um, and that, that effect, that phenomena is magnified by increasing donor age. One of the issues that we have these days in transplantation this is a worldwide issue, it's not just Australia, is that the age of donors is increasing. So there's, there's the sort of 
challenge. Now, that, um, we've been doing some work in uh, Australia uh, on increasing the ischemic time uh, out to uh, at least nine hours. If we could increase the ischemic time safely to nine hours without the penalty of primary graft dysfunction, then there is no heart in Australia or New Zealand, because organs can go between Australia and New Zealand, uh, there is no heart that could not be transplanted because of logistic reasons. Now, the next horizon in cardiac transplantation is machine perfusion. Now, we've already seen the transmedics device being used for DCD hearts, that is, donation after circulatory death, uh, and the transmedic system uh, is able to resuscitate uh, hearts that are removed in the DCD situation because DCD hearts take this triple hit of ischemia, of hypoxia, and distension. So they're not normal hearts. They have to be resuscitated, and the transmetic system does that by the warm uh, by a warm beating process. And the transmetic system is all is also used for so-called marginal hearts, where there is there is a um, a donor heart that uh, is had some sort of injury, uh, the 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 injury of, of brain death and myocardial dysfunction, and potentially could be resuscitated on the transmetic system. So that's that's dealing with non-normal hearts. Now, if you take a normal heart from a brain-dead uh, uh, brain dead donor, is there some way that we can machine perfuse this heart to allow the ischemic time to be extended out to eight to nine hours? And the answer, is that, answer to that question is yes. Uh, and that's uh, the basis of research we're doing uh, in Australia. So... The, the real pioneer of, of hypothermic ex vivo perfusion, HEVP, uh, is Professor Stig Steen from Lund in Sweden. Uh, he, Stig Steen's a, a remarkable uh, man. He's a retired cardiac surgeon, but he's got this incredible grasp of, of physiology. And he made a, a, a conceptual leap uh, in in HEVP by saying that a heart beating in a brain-dead donor is equivalent to a heart on a machine perfusion system. That is, neither have a functioning vasomotor center or a functioning pituitary gland. So he came up with this, this perfusion solution uh, that's cold, it's at 8 degrees centigrade, it's got oxygen in it uh, because it does have uh, red cells, um, it's a cardioplegic solution to pharmacologically paralyse the heart, but it also has brain death hormones in it. It's got, some, it's got uh, thyroid hormones, it's got adrenaline, noradrenaline, uh, it's got um, uh, corticosteroid, and it also has insulin as well to... to um, deal with the uh, issues so glucose can be taken into the myocardial cells. So we have an experimental model uh, of, uh, of uh, brain death and machine perfusion and then transplantation of the heart uh, and in the experimental animal 
And we now routinely can extend the ischemic time out to nine and a half hours with normal function of the uh, of the donor heart in the recipient. It is, it is one of the most remarkable things I've seen in transplantation to be able to machine perfuse a heart for eight hours, then to put it into a recipient with normal function. But it's more, even more interesting than that. If we, uh, if we, uh, the, 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 the method that we use worldwide for cardiac transplantation, the method we've used for 50 years is called cold static storage. So we take out a donor heart, we then put it in an ice slush solution and carry it in a cooler. That's how it's done worldwide. If we do that to an experimental animal heart, and then even for a relatively short time, like about two hours, and then we put it into transplanted into a recipient, the hearts do work okay, but the recipient doesn't. So that the urine will often just switch off. The animal will become vasoplegic and we need a lot of support with, with inotropic and vasopressor drugs and the animal may not necessarily survive for the six hours of observation period. Whereas if we machine perfuse with HEVP, the heart, so we, 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 we perfuse it in the, in the donor, take the heart, put it on a perfusion system, even for relatively short periods of time, like about two hours, and then transplant it into the recipient animal. The, the heart works, works normally, but so does the recipient. We get no vasoplegia, the kidneys uh, work, and we have minimal inotropic requirements, and the animal survives to the six hours of observation. So something comes out of these donor hearts when we store them in cold static, with cold static storage. We don't know what it is. That's our next line of investigation. What is it that is damaging to the recipient? But I think HEVP uh, is uh, got tremendous potential. So as a result of the work we're doing and work in Sweden, there was a there was a clinical trial of HEVP with relatively short ischemic times in, in Sweden just to demonstrate the safety of HEVP. We are actually, uh, we have a Australia-New Zealand trial of, which, I, one of, a, of which, which I'm one of the principal investigators. And all five transplant centres in Australia and the one transplant centre in New Zealand are involved in this trial uh, we haven't been able, we're, we're ready to go. We, unfortunately, we haven't been able to start because of COVID. Uh, but the, the uh, study will involve any donor heart in Australia where the projected ischemic time is greater than six hours will be put on a, a uh, HEVP system. This, will be the, this is the ex vivo system. And then will be transported to uh, the uh, transplant centre, uh, and this will involve 36, uh, 36 donor hearts. So this is a very this is this is a real test of the of HEVP. The the the, the short ischemic times that they used in Sweden demonstrate the system is safe, but you know it, that's not the real test. The real test is let's take the ischemic time out to a duration where we would all have some disquiet, some 
concern about using cold static storage, and that is beyond six hours. This is very uh, exciting and really fascinating. So you're, you're just about to start clinical trials in patients, you know, in actual transplant patients. This is like a phase one or phase two? Uh, yeah, this is correct. This, so this is, this is a demonstration of uh, efficacy of the system. This is, so the, the underpinning of this is we would not use these, or we would be very reluctant to use these hearts, or we only use these hearts for somebody really urgent because we're going beyond six hours where we assume that we may need to use post-op ECMO to support the heart until it recovers uh, it's, uh, with cold static storage. Fascinating. And, and possibly uh, could enter a phase three clinical trials within the next two years. Uh, I think very likely there's a trial that is ready to get underway in Europe, which would be a randomized trial of cold static storage versus HEVP. That trial is difficult because it involves eight different countries with all their different regula- regulatory con- differences, um, particularly with respect to governance and ethics, and uh, and it's also been held up by COVID as well. Right. Anything in South Carolina, Jason, uh, in the field of ischemic time research? No, I mean, not really. I mean, cold static storage is still kind of the gold standard, um, you know, as Dr. McGiffin knows, and um, you know, there are some companies out there, you know, with uh, kind of warm perfusion type devices um, to improve things, um, as well as kind of DCD organs and trying to, um, you know, transport patients to the donor hospital itself, you know, so it reduces ischemia time. Um, but, you know, it's a, a field that's, uh, you know, has been pretty static, no pun intended, for decades, as Dr. McGiffin alluded to, um, and definitely has some you know, probably room for improvement in this kind of new technology age and <clears throat> better, better understanding of, you know, human physiology that we're in now. Well, that's great. And um, we talked a little bit about um, the, uh, even the new allocation, the patient that have, you know, um, VADs, as well as mechanical circulatory support system, consider viable unless they have a complication. And of course, we, in the complications are described as hemolysis, uh, device infection, the uh, thrombosis or clotting of the pumps, as well as um, the bleeding. Uh, but what, what kind of options do we have, uh, for example, if, if the right ventricle doesn't really um, want to collaborate? Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. McGiffin? Yes, that's, this is one of the problems of, uh, of LVADs, and that is the right ventricle. Uh, and um, it's, it's important to understand um, uh, some of the, the physiology of the right ventricle because the right ventricle relies very much on the function of the left ventricle. Uh, so probably at least 20 to 40% of right ventricular ejection is directly the result of left ventricular contraction, particularly the septum and ventricular twist, because the, the, the fibres of the left ventricle, uh, the fibres of the left ventricle are oriented both longitudinally, circularly, and obliquely. And it's the oblique fibres that give the twist to the left ventricle. Now, the right ventricle, though, has only longitudinal and circular fibres, so it's unable to twist. So it relies on the septal 
contraction and the twisting action of the left ventricle for some of its function. So when we put a VAD in the left ventricle, uh, we change the geometry of the right ventricle uh, and we change its physiology. So because the sewing ring and the uh, inflow cannula is attached to the apex of the left ventricle, we obliterate the twist, uh, most of the twisting action of the left ventricle. And we also distort the septal uh, contraction as well. So it's not surprising then that the right ventricles can fail after after implantation of, a, of an LVAD. Now, there are patients that we know ahead of time before LVAD implantation, this right ventricle is going to be a problem. Uh, and it's those patients uh, where right ventricular failure is clearly part of the clinical picture. Now, it's a small group of patients, probably about 10% of patients having an LVAD, where we say this right ventricle has no chance. We've got it. We've got to do something else, something for that right ventricle. So the options are either a total artificial heart, and the only one that really is uh, on the market at the moment is a syncardia, or use two LVADs. That is an LVAD in the left-sided position and an off-label use of an LVAD in the right-sided position. So that means that means two pumps, two drive lines two sets of batteries, two controllers, it's, it's, it's sort of cumbersome. And the, res- and the results of doing this are not all that good. Uh, and one of the concerns is thrombosis uh, on the, of the right-sided pump because that appears to be a fairly pr- provocative setting to put a pump on the right side. And it's also raised the question of where should you put it? Should you put it in the right atrium or put it in the right ventricle? Now, there have been... Uh, uh, at least three that I can think of, three experiences with the hardware pump placed either in the right atrium or the right ventricle. But survival's not all that good. It's about 50% at uh, 12 to 18 months. Now, I will say that I think the HeartMate 3 has made a difference because we have 12 patients that we've put in uh, a right-sided pump, so it's a biventricular configuration, where we put the HeartMate 3 in the right atrium uh, and uh, as a bridge to transplantation, uh, and um, we've had one death. Uh, and um, we've bridged one patient to recovery and VAD explantation. We've had the one death, and we've bridged... Um, uh, eight of the patients to transplantation and three are remaining on ongoing support. Uh, so I'm, um, I, I think that this notion that, um, that the results of using bivads are not very good is not really, is not immutable. Because I think we've demonstrated in our HeartMate 3 experience that you actually can get good results. Um, uh, but I think that maybe the HeartMate 3 uh, is the answer here because the risk of pump thrombosis in the HeartMate 3, we know from the Momentum 3 trial, is, is almost negligible. Uh, and uh, that may, in fact, make the difference. Now, right ventricle long term, though, if you have an LVAD, 
the right ventricle is is even in, if the right if the patient doesn't need biventricular support up front, we do know that the, one of the major causes of death after an LVAD is progressive right ventricular failure. So the problem is still not solved. The biventricular support up front, I think, I think we have a you know we have an answer to that problem, but when the right ventricle starts failing a year from the LVAD, 18 months, two years, that patient is on a really bad trajectory. They go downhill very quickly. So the answer is if you've had got an LVAD and you're right, you start getting symptoms and signs of right ventricular failure, you're, you're in bad trouble. And if you're a bridge to transplant, then you need to be transplanted because your survival is very poor. Now, if it's destination therapy, of course, you know, we don't have a good answer. Now, I will say, though, that as in the, the, this biventricular configuration with two LVADs, as I said, it's, it's, it's sort of cumbersome, but we can, you can make it work. I think the future is, though, a fit-for-purpose designed biventricular pump. And there is one that's currently in preclinical testing called the Bivacor. Now, this is a really novel pump. It was actually, it was, it had its origins in Australia, in Brisbane. Um, and it's very, very clever. Uh, so it's, there's one can and two impellers, which are very different shapes, one for the left ventricle, one for the right ventricle. So they, they, they have their own characteristics based on which circulation they're pumping for, the left side or the right side. And they're on the same shaft. Uh, but it's got a movable plate between the two impellers, so it's got its own ventricular interdependence. So depending on the filling of one side, it'll alter the move, it'll move the plate to change filling on the other side. Uh, it's a, and it can get tremendous flows. Uh, so I think a pump like the Bivacor uh, may be the answer rather than use this sort of cumbersome arrangement of two LVADs. So you've got to take out the ventricles. And so um, these uh, connectors onto the atria and then they clip into the Bivacor. Um, the Syncardia also is very similar. You take the ventricles out put these uh, uh, cuff, uh, cuffs on the atria and then the syncardia clips into these cuffs. But you can't, if, if, if recovery of the myocardium is even possible, then you shouldn't be thinking syncardia or thinking bivacore. If you, if you want to recover the heart, then you, should, you need to be using an LVAD. So drive lines are one of the uh, weak links in ventricular assist devices. Um, the drive lines have to uh, penetrate the skin uh, coming from the pump uh, to the controller and the power source. And, uh, and you can readily see that these drive lines are a problem because they are prone to infection because the exit side of the drive line in the skin is a portal of infection. Uh, and and infection is not just driveline infection is not just a local problem of of uh, of, of of infection. 
it has ram important ramifications because because in most uh, studies, particularly multivariable studies of risk factors for stroke, either hemorrhagic or ischemic, driveline infection emerges. So there's probably some systemic consequence of having a driveline infection that contributes to ischemic strokes and hemorrhagic strokes. So infection is a really a very important problem associated with VADs. So what the, 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 the goal in VAD therapy is to get rid of drivelines. Uh, and the VAD companies are working furiously on this because this would be a, a, an enormous development. So the future is some sort of transcutaneous energy transfer. So you have, so the patient has a coil somewhere in the chest or the abdomen, abdominal wall, and there is an external coil that is put over the internal coil uh, and uh, energy is transferred uh, from the external coil to the internal coil. Uh, now, that's, that's sort of in, in principle, but the details then become important because making sure that the coils are aligned properly is difficult. There's the problem of conducting heat away, generate, what do you do with generated heat? Um, uh, the reliability of the system, because if, it, if the system fails, then the pump stops. So it's got to be 100% reliable. And there is a system called the Coplanus Energy Transfer System, and this has been done, performed, I, at, I think it's in two patients so far. So there's a large coil that is placed in the right pleural space beneath the right lung. Um, and the alignment of the exterior coil and the interior coil aren't as critical with this coplanar system. Uh, and these patients um, uh, are free of any driveline. And there's a, very, there's a very interesting video clip I've seen of this patient without a driveline actually getting into a swimming pool and swimming. Uh, <laughs> But you'll, you, one thing to note, there's a, uh, a, a, um, a wire that's actually running up attached to the skull, which is the emergency plug-in if the system fails. So, so reliability is still a problem. So these, this system, this type of system is probably a few years away yet. Uh, but it's the next horizon in VAD therapy is getting rid of drive lines. Amazing. A lot of research, obviously, being, uh, being performed in this mechanical su circulatory support devices and, um, you know, heart made three and so forth. So a lot of bright future and, and a lot of development we should expect there. Um, so uh, can we actually, you know, with this in mind, I mean, can we actually make a new heart, um, you know, using the technology that we have nowadays, Jason, um, how about 3D printing and, and fabricating a new heart that we could transplant? Yeah, so there's lots of um, kind of uh, what is seemingly kind of space age um, technology and ideas nowadays uh, with the advancement of, um, you know, various 3D printing and um, kind of biologic printing 
um, as well as gene editing. Um, so some of the um, kind of high yield, um, high technology um, things that are on the horizon is indeed 3D printing. So being able to have um, cellular scaffolding for various um, organs, not necessarily just the heart, but other organs as well, the lungs, um, the liver, the pancreas. So having a biologic scaffold that you know mimics the, the human organ and then using 3D printing of tissues um, or um, stem cells um, on top of that scaffolding that then remake um, a biologic organ. Um, as you might imagine, if you use uh, patient cells, then this gets um, um, away from the idea of rejection. You know, this would all be um, something that would be compatible with the, um, with the recipient. Um, so these are, you know, some technologies that, you know, once um, was just hypothetical are now becoming a reality. Um, so as our technology with, you know, printing and understanding kind of biologic mechanisms and, and um, you know, stem cell activation, I think these will all become a reality, um, you know, in the, in the distant future. Probably something that would be more of a reality in the not too distant future, and Dr. McGiff would be able to comment on this as well, would be xenotransplantation. So there's been a lot of advancements in um, uh, um, xenotransplantation, which is using, you know, animal organs and transplanting them into humans. Um, so making, using gene editing technologies to make um, animal organs um, immunologically silent so that they are compatible with humans or expressing uh, human proteins that at least make them look on the inside um, that they're compatible with humans or all things that are advancing quickly. Um, so once, you know, xenotransplantation was, you know, um, the future and just kind of continued to always be the future. Now it's seemingly like the future is now potentially given some of the very um, rapid advancements in, in um, biological technology and um, gene editing and some of those things. Um, there's a recent uh, article that came out, you know, looking at um, genetically modified pig hearts and transplanting them into baboons. Um, that was uh, fairly successful. Um, and again, just um, kind of a preview of potentially things to come. Um, I'd like to get Dr. McGiffin's comments on that as well, because he's lived and breathed this field for, for decades. So Norm Shumway, who's the uh, father of cardiac transplantation, once made the statement many years ago, and Jason just alluded to it, uh, xenotransplantation is just around the corner and that's where it always will be. Um, that's probably no longer true. There's some really interesting developments in xenotransplantation. Now, it's probably theoretically possible to use uh, non-human primate hearts and transplant them to humans, but uh, I, that's something that will never, nor, nor should it ever, ever happen, uh, because I just don't think that there's, for all sorts of societal reasons, that that would be accepted. So... The animal that's really been chosen for xenotransplantation is, is the pig. And I think probably one of the, the biggest, fee, the, the, the area that really needs xenotransplantation is pediatric cardiac transplantation. Uh, you know, make, having small pig hearts, um, which uh, would be suitable for, for uh, infants and, and children. Now, the problem is that there are lots of immunological problems, but the one that became apparent in the early days of xenotransplantation is, is the fact that on, on the pig, um, 
uh, cell surface is a carbohydrate, uh, galactose, 1,3-galactose, uh, and it's on all animal cells except for old-world monkeys, which includes humans. But we have antibodies for GAL. We acquired these antibodies early in life, probably from the microbiome in our gut. Uh, and so if you put a pig heart into a human or a, or a, uh, a non-human primate, it'll be, there'll be immediate hyperacute rejection. So pigs were engineered so they didn't express the gal epitope uh, and that sort of gets around the, gets around the hyperacute rejection problem. But the, the acute xenotransplant rejection problem also involves coagulation, involves complements, activation. And so pigs are being engineered now to have complement regulatory proteins and thrombomodulin, which is a, a which is a, um, a, a anticoagulation uh, gene. And as Jason alluded, there have been some uh, pro Xeno programs around the world that are getting really very good survival after a couple of years with pig to baboon. And I will mention um, there are lots of lots of details which I'm leaving out here. The, the immunosuppression has is very specific for preventing xenograft rejection. Um, but the but there's a group in Germany, um, Bethesda, and at UAB uh, that have got a pig to baboon models, uh, and um, with this very prolonged survival. Um, now, the two years is great, but it's not 10 years. Um, and so there's probably some other forms of rejection and other, other concerns that haven't yet become apparent. One of the concerns is about transmitting retroviruses too. That, that's, that um, concern has probably been overplayed. But I think the field is moving very rapidly, uh, and I think xenotransplantation of pig to human for kidneys uh, and for hearts is, is, is a realistic option in, uh, in the near future. Certainly patients are used to, uh, you know, getting a, a pig valve or, you know, a bovine, you know, valve. So it's not, you're not, uh, too much fancy to um, push that forward to really a, a pig heart and, you know, as maybe a way to, um, you know, um, to help with transplantation and patients <laughs> with end-stage, you know, heart failure. Um, still in preclinical studies, so a lot of work to be done, but, you know, uh, future is promising there too. Now, if we look at rejection, you know, obviously the patients that have had a transplant and we, where you want to monitor rejection, still have to have these endomyocardial biopsies, you know, repeatedly. Uh, is there something that is being developed in the field uh, using non-invasive technique or is the cardiac biopsy just the only mechanism to detect rejection? You know, Jason. So, you know, the heart biopsy is, you know, still kind of the workhorse for ruling out um, cellular and uh, antibody-mediated rejection in transplant patients, especially in the first year, um, which is the highest risk kind of period, so to speak, um, for having rejection. 
Um, there's been a lot of work into finding what we call non-invasive ways. So not having to do a heart cath, not having to do a biopsy, non-invasive ways of um, determining rejection. Um, and uh, um, not a whole lot has been um, able to be identified uh, to really kind of rule that out. Um, as you might imagine, these are very high stakes. You know, if someone's heart rejects, that's a big deal um, to, to lose a, a transplanted heart um, either immediately or um, even after a, a few, even after one to two or even three years. Um, so the stakes are very high. Um, so lots of research going into identifying things, you know, circulating things in the blood to rule out rejection. Um, but, uh, you know, work still has to be done. There's been a, a lot of things looking at, um, you know, circulating cell-free DNA, um, various biomarkers, including, you know, BNP, troponin, um, various growth factors um, like VEGF um, or um, ET1, um, including some immunologic um, kind of factors as well, like CD5L, um, looking again for acute rejection. Um, but ultimately, a lot of those things um, are still in the experimental stage. Um, the one kind of non-invasive testing that's been used um, um, in some parts of the world, um, including the U.S., is Alamap. So Alamap is kind of a um, non-invasive test, again, for heart transplant recipients um, that's able to identify potentially acute cellular rejection um, um, in uh, transplanted patients. And uh, it uses a kind of a cluster um, of 20 genes. So it uses uh, blood to analyze 20 genes to look for the activation of rejection. Um, so this is something that's been used um, in some centers, not used in others, um, but is a way of kind of non-invasively detecting rejection. So there's a, a few indications. Um, we can talk about that in order, or at least when to think about it. Um, so gene expression profiling um, can be used as an alternative to endomyocardial biopsy, like we've talked about, um, for routine rejection surveillance. So this would just be routine. You would never use any of these non-invasive tests in people who are high risk for rejection or actively rejecting. Um, it's most appropriately used um, to exclude moderate or severe acute cellular rejection in patients between six months. So that'd be kind of the earliest time frame. Um, and uh, five years post-transplant. So that's um, where it has FDA indication, although there are some centers that use it even past five years um, and uh, considered to be a low likelihood of such rejection. So these are your low likelihood um, patients. You would you know, never use this in people who are high risk for rejection. Um, it's currently indicated for patients at least 55 days from transplants is the FDA indication um, on less than 20 milligrams of prednisone daily. Um, with no recent rejection. And recent rejection is defined as rejection or a rejection episode less than six months. Um, so this is probably the most robust, in a way, non-invasive test for um, kind of low-risk patients. But ultimately, and anyone who's gone through a transplant evaluation or is currently transplanted knows that, you know, the, the workhorse of rejection evaluation is indeed the, the um, right ventricular biopsy or endocardial endomyocardial biopsy, um, and is usually so for definitely the first year, if not into the, um, the after five years. Um, and then if everything remains stable after that, then certain centers will have protocols for trying to do non-invasive ways, whether that's uh, dobutamine, um, stress echo, um, or Alamap or other things um, you know, that makes it a little bit easier for the patient. 
Now, the non-invasive imaging techniques, um, you know, we could see LVH or really hypertrophy where the, the heart muscle becomes very thick on echo. Uh, nothing in the field of the MRI or magnetic resonance imaging um, with or without gadolinium. Um, I think there are people looking at that, but I don't think uh, you know, any of the current studies um, have been solid enough to uh, um, switch kind of the standard practice patterns. Um, but really, it would be looking at um, inflammation. So that's really what you're trying to identify um, with rejection. Um, just looking for those immune cells that are invading the invading the heart and basically attack attacking um, what they what the cells perceive as being foreign. Um, and uh, so you could see that on cardiac MRI as inflammation, um, you know, kind of non-specific non-specific inflammation. And uh, some of those things are you know being used currently, um, but I don't think any of them are kind of ready for prime time. Dr. McGiffin has mentioned in the first podcast that really cyclosporin has been, you know, the drug, the immunosuppressive drug that really changed the whole field of cardiac transplantation. Are there any new immunosuppressive therapies that are being studied currently? Um, maybe something that is more catered to, you know, a particular patient or more individualized um, medicine type? So, there's there's really uh, there's lots of immunosuppressive drugs that are being studied uh, in in uh, laboratory and in uh, experimental situations, but there's really nothing out there at the moment that uh, is on the horizon to change cardiac transplant immunosuppression. Um, you know that the the drugs we've got at the moment uh, it, it's good. Uh, there's no doubt when CNIs came along that is cyclos sporine and decrolimus it just absolutely changed absolutely changed survival it was just overnight um uh, so the the cnis have been a really uh a very, were incredibly important to improving the survival of patients after cardiac transplantation but there's no next step beyond cni that um that's going to result in another dramatic step in transplant survival. The proliferation signal inhibiting drugs, uh, sirolimus and everolimus, they've, they, they have got an important uh, role uh, under certain circumstances, but it hasn't, they haven't made the big leap that the CNI drugs did. Yeah, and all that's true. Um, I would say that there are definitely some, uh, um, you know, the mTOR inhibitors like sirolimus, um, some big believers, you know, various centers are kind of big believers in those and kind of small little studies coming out, you know, looking at the early conversion to sirolimus, um, at attenuating, um, you know, cardiac, um, cardiac allograft vasculopathy, which is kind of the, the heart disease equivalent in the transplanted heart. Um, and then some suggestions that maybe there might be a lower mortality, um, and fewer events, um, related to CNI use, but none of these are really, I think, kind of, ready for like a wholesale change in the transplant community. I think there's going to have to be additional data and that sort of thing. But I think the, at least the idea um, and being open to switching to um, some of the mTOR inhibitors um, is, is there. Um, but Dr. McGiffin suggested, you know, nothing has revolutionized transplant like the CNIs um, and um, you know, which is a, a great thing. Um, basically that's kind of changed uh, um, transplant management you know, for the last several years. And I want to say the last numbers I saw about 90 to 95% of um, programs are using um, calcineurin inhibitors. 
which is impressive. I think one of the big challenges in the future, or one of our big challenges is cardiac allograft vasculopathy, this chronic rejection process, because that's one of the important causes of mortality. Um, and um, this, pro this process is very different from the non-transplant atherosclerotic process. It's, uh, it's a diffuse process throughout the coronary arteries as opposed to the sort of segmental disease that we see in non-transplant coronary artery disease. Uh, and that's why there has to be ongoing surveillance of these patients with some sort of imaging, including coronary angiography, on an annual basis uh, to detect this CAV. Uh, because if it progresses, um, uh, it, it, uh, it may be that the only way of managing this is retransplantation. And if you've transplanted a child, let's say, uh, and it, it's important that the parents realise that this is not, this is almost certainly not going to be one transplant. This is a lifetime of transplants, uh, and patient and a child over sixty years may require two, maybe three, heart transplants, uh, and that would be principally because of the development of cardiac allograft vasculopathy. But it's not inevitable that this happens. Um, about 50% of transplant patients have some degree of CAV by five years. So there's 50% that don't. Uh, so we've got to understand why some people get it and, and some don't. There's lots of known risk factors, um, you know, that are, that are transplant-related acute rejection, primary graft dysfunction, some sort of injury to the endothelium, uh, and um, particularly antibody-mediated rejection, uh, and uh, certain infections like CMV is a risk factor. Um, and then there are all the sort of non-transplant-related uh, traditional atherogenic risk factors, you know, hypertension and smoking and cholesterol and so on. That's why managing, managing the whole patient with, with uh, is so important in obtaining uh, the best survival possible is by looking at look is by managing all of these factors. There are the immutable transplant factors, but there are all the the, the non immutable atherogenic factors that have to be looked after: hypertension, cholesterol, um, or you know, obviously, you know, not smoking and so on. All those are important to that have to be managed uh, in a transplant patient. Patient certainly uh, becomes a very important part of the team. And that's why the, you know, the, the scrutiny is so high prior to a transplantation to choose the right patient, the right candidate that really, um, you know, wants, wants to live and wants to survive and wants to do everything about it. The thing, the message that we have here is, is with all the podcasts that we've done on cardiogenic shock, on new treatments of heart failure, on, on LVAD, on on uh, you know, uh, on the cardiac transplantation, is that you can live, you know, with heart failure, and you can live even with advanced heart failure with with the right team, the right doctors, uh, and uh, there's more and more ways to really help the failing heart, uh, you know, uh, and I think this really kind of brings a strong message, uh, you know, and and a very bright future. I think as 
future research is still being conducted and um, um, we have to think new techniques, new developments and the 3D printing really seems really interesting. Um, Dr. Guichard, uh, thank you very much for your participation today. Dr. David McGiffin, you know, as always, again, uh, a great morning and have a great day while we're going to be, you know, cooking dinner and, and um, head to an evening in our part of the world. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you, Elaine. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.